Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II with me, Johan Tasker, a military historian, Mike Peters. In this episode, we're in Norfolk, about four miles from the market town of Dis in the east of England. We're here at Thorpe Abbots and we're here at the 100th Bomb Group Memorial Museum Mike, the 100th Bomb Group is probably the most famous bomb group of them all. It's notorious for losing lots of men, lots of planes. Some of the most disastrous uh, losses in the history of the mighty 8th Air Force. Its history is a stuff of legend. It's nicknamed the Bloody 100th. Death is never far away when people talk about the 100th Bomb Group. Yeah, the hundredth certainly one of the most certainly the most written about, and you said famous. Maybe it's infamous uh, for those losses, particularly in 1943, where complete formations are being taken out, and in one instance, only one aircraft returns from a raid. And clearly, the the, the new TV series Masters of the Air is going to raise interest even further. But there's more to it than that. Uh, the history is probably even more interesting. It's full of very strong personalities colourful incidents that happened right the way through the, the bomb group's history it is going to be interesting to see how much of the truth comes through because the 100th has a very patchy reputation certainly in its first year and today we're really going to talk about 1943 which is where the, the nickname the bloody 100th originates there are all kinds of legends myths and, and certainly a whole culture of folklore surrounding the 100th bomb group but were they unlucky 
uh, or was it down to the way they flew, a lack of discipline, the poor training? Was there really a vendetta? Did the Luftwaffe really seek out aircraft with the square D on the tail of the, where the Hundreds Bomb Group aircraft? All of these questions we're going to look at today. But I'm glad we're here because it's, it's about to become really high profile with the advent of the new Masters of the Air TV series. And that will inevitably bring more people to the subject. But what is myth? What is legend? And actually, what is truth? And what is the real history of the 100th? Well, we're here in the car park of the 100th Bomb Group Memorial Museum here at Thorpe Abbotts. The museum volunteers, the, the trustees have been kind enough to welcome us here. It's a, it's a cold morning in January. They've opened their gates to us. They're going to open their archives. They're going to show us around and give us and you, the listener, a behind-the-scenes look at life in the 100th Bond Group. Let's go and meet them. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast, the podcast about the people, the planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. The control tower here at Thorpe Abbots is the star attraction. It's been lovingly restored, painted green. It looks almost as it would have done in 1943. And it houses some of the museum's most precious collections. And we're going to have a look at some of those later on in this episode of the podcast. But for now, we've climbed the metal steps to the top, which really does transport you back to World War II. And it gives us a great panoramic view of what would have been a vast military airbase. And we're joined by Reg Wilson, Chair of the Trustees of the 100th Bomb Group Memorial Museum. Reg, what can we see? Well, standing here beside the glasshouse, if we look out towards the south, we can see pretty much an airfield that's been unchanged since 1943. Okay, we've lost some of the, the concrete, the aircraft on there, we've lost the hand, hard stands. But the shape of this airfield has remained pretty much unchanged since then. So if you look out to the south, we can see in front of the tower part of the uh, peritrack, the, the, the taxiway. And beyond that, we have about 100 yards or so of the original main runway. We have one of the cross runways, we have quite a bit of that. That scene has remained pretty much as it was in 1943. So... If you were here at that time, you'd see the same sort of thing that we're looking at now, except there would probably have been about 50 flying fortresses standing on the hard stands around the perimeter of the airfield, all visible from this point, so you could control the aircraft movements. And again, to the sort of south over there, a line of trees marked the start of all the accommodation and technical areas associated with the airfield. So over there was the home for about 3,000 to 3,500 Americans. And the 100th flew its first proper mission from here on the 25th of June, 1943. So we know the 100th bomb group was here, Reg, but what does that comprise of? There were four squadrons of aircraft here. The 351st, which was located along the line where we are now north of the airfield, the 349th, which is essentially across to the east of the airfield. Uh, down to the southeast was the uh, 350th Squadron, and then along to the southwest was the 418th Squadron. Um, the 100th Bomb Group had the four squadrons, as most of the uh, bomb groups did. 
but also the 100th was part of the 13th Combat Wing, which would be uh, three uh, bomber groups that tended to fly together on missions, and that comprised the 95th at Horham and the 390th at uh, Framlingham, along with uh, Thor Babbitt's. And Mike, those uh, those those squadrons they they would have formed a combat wing within the the third uh, air division. Yeah, as Reggie said, so the, the the bomb group here work flies with two other bomb groups as part of the combat wing, and uh, in this case, it's the thirteenth combat wing, which is part of the third air division, who have the headquarters at Elvedon uh, in Suffolk. Uh, also flying as part of the third air division of the fourth combat wing, who have their headquarters at Bury St Edmunds, at what we now know as Ruffham, and uh, the forty-fifth combat wing, who fly from Snetterton. So th- that is the third air division, and that they work alongside the first air division and the second air division. So the three air divisions, which are the uh, eighth air force bomber command. Reg, the first eight missions of the hundredth bomb group, they were particularly unfortunate. They're unlucky. I think when you ask what was the cause of them becoming known as the Bloody Hundredth, I think it just comes down to, as you said, luck. Um, and they had bad luck. I mean, their very first mission, they lost three aircraft, so 30 aircrew were lost on the first mission. And then as we go through 1943 into August and then October, they, the losses are going to start to rack up. And so in August, they lose nine aircraft... Um, attacking Regensburg and then October is in Black Week on the uh, 8th of uh, October um, they lose seven aircraft the next day they fly to Marienburg they're lucky they don't lose anything and then on the 10th is the Munster mission and on Munster we have 13 aircraft leaving this airfield and only one comes back uh, flown by Rosie Rosenthal so in those three days this airfield has lost about 40% of the air crew, about 40% of the aircraft. And that's a massive impact on the morale of the base. So by the middle of Black Week, the morale here has, has taken a big hit. And that's only going to generate or reinforce any impression that this is a, a bad luck organisation. If you come here, the chances are you're not going to, um, going to leave. And where does the luck involve? The luck largely comes from where you end up in that formation. You know, the Germans don't go looking for a specific bomb group. What they're looking for is the easiest target. What can they hit and get, a, and get away from? And uh, those locations in the bomb stream at the back, low at the back or at the front, that's where the 100th ends up quite often. And that's why the 100th takes losses, because it's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mike, 1943 was a particularly challenging year for the 8th Air Force. Yeah, it was, Johan. Uh, I mean, the tr- we're still trying to grow an air force. We've spoken in previous podcasts about r- mission number one, Rouen, from when we were at Grafton Underwood and how you, it's it's a few aircraft, a handful, one single squadron almost, and then it's growing. And as, as quickly as the 8th Air Force is gaining new squadrons and groups, it's, it's, it's losing aircraft. And how do you how do you maintain that? And they're trying to get further. And, and there's also the issue of all the things, the weather. They're, they're learning how to fight and learning how to operate and the 100th is a great case in point where you you go through the training cycle in in the in the in the united states in good weather you practice you train etc and then you get here and it's it's different the weather is different uh, particularly is a massive factor navigation actually bombing for real through cloud is is more challenging flak 
the Luftwaffe. It's completely different. They've done their best to prepare these guys for what's to come. But in 1943, it's all pretty new. And they're locked into this daylight precision bombing doctrine. And, and the losses are, are staggering. So the bloody hundredth, it's the stuff of myth and the stuff of legend, one of them being the, the wheels down incident, the picklepus situation. Tell me about that, Reg. Yeah, that's one of the, if you like, myths behind how the hundredth became known as the bloody hundredth. It was an incident in which an aircraft, which some people say was picklepus, uh, lowered its wheels as a sign of um, surrender and was then closed in uh, by German fighters who were going to escort it to one of their airfields but uh, it's said that this aircraft then opened fire uh, on the German uh, German aircraft. Now that incident has never been verified by anyone from the 100th and even uh, at the end of the war uh, Adolf Galland who was in charge of the Luftwaffe said he never knew anything of, of, of that uh, incident. Mike, what's your view on this? I mean, what would the consequences of something like this be? Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because as Reg says, this is really an unofficial thing that you'd do. You'd lower your wheels. It's almost like waving a white flag. A bo- for a bomber to lower its wheels and reduce speed and fall out of formation, is, it's almost making itself helpless. So that would indicate you're, you're about to surrender. And the wheels down incident is also attributed to the 390th, a pilot called James Regan as well. Again, pretty much unsubstantiated. So, and if you really think about it, you know, if you were going to surrender, you would surrender. Uh, and for the to to for those waste gunners and maybe the mid upper the upper gun upper turret to shoot down two FW nineties one nineties in, in, in a go like that, it would be quite a, quite an achievement. And then how would you escape after that? You know, so it, it really, I think it's a myth. And then if you really think about it, if you're the Luftwaffe fighter arm, and you are so enraged by this. The practicalities of hunting out a single individual bomb group in a 100-mile bomber stream to, and wasting time looking for them when you could be shooting down other bombers, which is your primary function, um, it's not really, doesn't really hold water. I think it's just part of the folklore of the bloody 100th. And many people say this is the, the date and point where the, the nickname originates. That's even more, as Reggie said, it's even more difficult to, 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 to prove. Um, it, I think it's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's about, it's about the, the reputation of the, of the bomb group in stateside before they get here, their the discipline and behaviour, and, and then also the losses, particularly through 1943, which we're going to talk about later in the podcast with Reg. It's, um, it's a compelling story, though, isn't it? It's almost like one of those stories that you want to believe because it would be, it's just so amazing. Yeah, you want to believe it. And maybe if you're at the time, you know, and you're taking these losses and, you, and your bomb group's not doing very well, it's, it's a good story to, it's a good conspiracy theory as to why you're taking those losses. But when we start to talk about this a little bit more, we'll see there are, there are lots of other circumstances and reasons why the, the 100th is, 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 is being attrited so heavily. Well, let's leave the top of the control tower and let's go down into the museum and let's look at one of those missions in depth, the Stuttgart mission of September 1943. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast, the podcast about the people, the planes, the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. We've come into the control tower now, the ground floor of the control tower. We're going to talk about the Stuttgart mission. Mike, we've mentioned the Schweinfurt-Regensburg uh, mission. We've done a, 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 an episode of the podcast all about that mission on the 17th of August, 1943. Three weeks later, the 100th Bomb Group went on another deep mission into Germany. Disastrous as well, the Stuttgart mission. Yeah, this is the first deep penetration raid after Schweinfurt-Regensburg, and it's a, an attack which involves 338 B-17s, which are going for industrial targets uh, around Stuttgart. Uh, it's quite a way into Third Reich airspace. And the, le- the lead element is the 1st Air Division, and the 100th Bomb Group with the 3rd Air Division in the 2nd echelon of this mission. Uh, unfortunately, the mission becomes disorganised, the formations start to loosen and, and uh, be broken up by confusion, navigational errors, uh, flak and German fighters who started to mass and were directed in by German fighter controllers. 27 bombers are lost from the lead formation. A huge number of, of aircraft and crews. The second wave, which involves the 100th Bomb Group, 18 aircraft from that formation failed to return. So after Schweinfeld-Regensburg, this is quite a large number of aircraft which have been damaged and lost again. So you can see why in, in the autumn of '43. People are starting to look around and think, is this going to work? And they were right in a way to, to question that. I mean, the flying in formation is not, it's not an easy thing to do, is it? It's, it's, it requires lots of discipline, lots of practice. It, you've, it, it's easy to say. It's easy for us to stand here and say, well, you know, they should have kept formation. But it wasn't an easy thing to do. No, even without flak or enemy fighters, it's quite difficult to fly such large aircraft so in such a tight formation. And the slightest bit of turbulence can affect that errors of judgment and you've got to get your keep the revs on your engine just right your propeller pitch just right to keep it constant you've only got to think about riding alongside someone on a bicycle two or three of you to try and keep in line imagine doing that at 20,000 feet in a four engine bomber being bucked around flying through intermittent cloud where you lose you've got to keep a visual reference with each other it's, it's a really difficult thing to do and, and this is one of the key things about the 100th bomb group which we're talking about here is you need to be disciplined you need to be trained you need to practice 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 and different group commanders place different emphases on different areas of the mission and how they conduct that and it, if you don't get this bit right it really does come home to roost because you know you're trying to get to the target together to pick out the target and you want to be in a tight formation so that when you drop your bombs they land together so not only is it about fighter defense it's also and protection it's about actually being accurate on target and you say about protection, this was before the B-17G came along, which was the, the version of the B-17, the Flying Fortress, with the chin turret, with the forward-facing guns, which gave them added protection against uh, head-on attacks by German fighter planes. Yeah, and the Germans are learning as well. And it's a reverse situation of the Battle of Britain. They've got time to loiter, they've got time to pick out targets, and they very quickly work out that the head-on attack, the B-17 has an Achilles heel, it's the nose. Uh, because 
the guns are actually in the nose. Very few of them before the chin tour actually can be fo- faced directly forward. They're off, off at a slight angle. And you look, you're looking to the B-17 to your left and right and above and below to protect you. Uh, but if you're, if you're a determined German expert and fighter pilot, you, you, you come straight in and, and, and you're aiming for the, the nerve centre of a B-17. If you hit the nose, navigator, bombardier, two pilots, ideally the pilots, that's it. It doesn't matter about the rest of the guys in the back. You, you can take that aircraft out and that's what they very quickly learned to do. And that's exactly what they did on the Stuttgart mission. If we look at the display here, it focuses on Squawking Hawk 2, an aircraft which was hit from 12 o'clock high, as in the film, by two pairs of fighters with 20mm shells ripping through the aircraft's tail and fuselage and also taking hits to the cockpit and the nose section. Yeah, and it's it's a classic Luftwaffe attack and... um They've gone for the for the weak spot as I've just described, and that's that's going to really affect the performance of the crew. So, Squawking Hawk is hit, Mike. This is a fantastic exhibit. It's not just about the plane; it's about the crew too. Yeah, it's really good. And what this allows us to do is to look at the human factor and actually the composition of a, of a B seventeen crew. And the, and the guys at Thorpe Abbott have done a great job here, and the family have been involved in in, in producing this as well. So, you you mentioned how how it happens. You know, they're attacked classically from twelve o'clock high by two pairs of fighters. So that's four fighters attacking one B seventeen, uh, and you can imagine how terrifying that might have been. They're taking hits in the cockpit, in the nose section, uh, but then Harold Pope, who's the top turret, gonna takes out one of the FW, FW-190s, uh, but as he hits it, it explodes and the debris splatters all over the, the B-17, causing damage to one of the horizontal stabilisers, and it punctures a fuel tank. So that gives you a really vivid idea of just how close these Fokker Wolves are to the B-17s. So when you think of that in the context of how close the formations are, you can see why these gaps start to appear. An exploding fighter in the middle of your combat box at the closing speeds they're going at, it's something else. And, and, and the tracer flying around from all the guns in amongst the combat box. You've got to be really careful not to shoot your, shoot your, hit your own, your own mates. But the, um, this attack on the Squawking Hawk, because it hits the fuel tank and the stabiliser, is pretty catastrophic. And also, it damages the oxygen system, which at that height is, is life-threatening. They need to get themselves sorted out and get onto oxygen tanks. As the smoke is clearing, Russell Engel, who's the navigator of the Scorking Hawk, in the nose of the aircraft, is blown out of his position, blown out of his seat and back into the, into the aircraft. And, and, and there are pictures of the crew of Scorking Hawk here in this display. Yeah, and, it, and, and that really personalises the story. And we just mentioned, mentioned the navigator being thrown out. He receives severe head trauma. He loses an eye. He's got shrapnel that rips in his hands, his arms, his legs. So he's, he's, out, he's in real trouble. In, in the air, in the aircraft, you can imagine the bombardier being aware of that because he's right next to him. Pete DeLeo, he's trying to he's trying to help the navigator, although he's um, seriously wounded himself. He's also receiving calls from the pilot who's been hit by shrapnel. The Squawking Hawk is in no fit state to carry on with the mission, and the, the crew that are fit to to do anything are trying desperately to treat the wounded, repair the aircraft systems, and keep it in the air. The co-pilot, uh, Harry Eadburn, has been struck by, in the right shoulder by a 20mm shell that passes through him and explodes on the armoured seat behind him, mortally wounded. So he's got the, the backsplash of a 20mm shell hitting the armour and then hitting him twice. So he's been hit twice by the same shell. The resulting explosion of that shell seriously wounds the pilot, who's now struggling to fly the aircraft while all this is going on around him. And Harry drifts in out of consciousness and on three occasions returning to his seat to assist in flying the plane, which is still being harassed by Luftwaffe fighters. 
So you can imagine waist gunner, tail gunner, still fighting their individual battles behind while the guys up in the front of the aircraft are trying to keep the aircraft flying, treat the wounded and get themselves home. Eventually, Harry is laid between the pilot and the co-pilot in the lower compartment. He's unconscious through lots of blood and sadly he passes away. The pilot, uh, Captain Summerida, dives the aircraft down below 10,000 feet and into heavy cloud. But there are gaps and they're playing cat and mouse because the, the Luftwaffe have not gone away. They've as we know, they, they go for wounded aircraft, stricken aircraft, and this is a, this is a very weakened aircraft. They know they, if they can find it, they can, they can probably finish it off. Squawking Hawk eventually leaves the safety of the clouds. The navigator Engel manages to get into the cockpit and assist with flying the battered plane for over an hour. They're on low on fuel. They've managed to work out where they are and use radio signals to plot a course for home. And then they eventually catch sight of the south coast of England and Kent, Sumner spots a rough grass strip, so um, they'd la- managed to land at RAF Stablehurst, which was a Canadian Air Force base. That's just one episode in a raid. When you think about how many of those crews were shot down, and that's been repeated all around the uh, bomber stream. But it does give an illustration of what happens to a B-17 when it's isolated from the protection of the, of the main formation. So we've got pictures of all the crew of Squawking Hawk here in this uh, in this display. So Reg, we, we've talked about armament, we've talked about the combat box, the formation flying. It's not just about discipline, it's not just about the armament of the B-17 Flying Fortress, whether it had a chin turret or not. It's also about different positions within the formation were, 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 were particularly vulnerable to attack from the Luftwaffe. Yeah, they would particularly want to pick off those in the towards the rear or low of the of the formation, or those right at the the front of the formation, and obviously avoid those packed in in the in the centre. But they would also do anything they could to break up those formations to make the attack easier. Whether that was you know taking an aircraft out or using standoff weapons to fire rockets in, anything to break up that formation to make it easier to penetrate. So when we're looking at uh, at the bloody hundredth, looking at, it, at whether it was particularly unlucky, there's a lot to think about, isn't there? There's a lot to consider. There's 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 discipline. There's formation. There's the type of missions that you were going on. Whether it was a deep mission into the heart of Germany without fighter escort cover, whether it was a milk run, it's very difficult to say whether the bloody hundredth was more or less lucky than other bomb groups but one thing is for sure they did suffer some horrendous losses in 1943 yeah they did and i think it's very difficult to say uh, you know were they the worst it's very difficult to estimate that without looking at you know a whole range of statistics so there were uh, bomber groups that flew for longer there were bomber groups that flew fewer missions um, so just looking at, say, absolute numbers of losses doesn't really tell you the story. And also you've got to look at the missions um, and where they were in those missions. In 43, the losses were high, but the losses did continue for the 100th right into 44. And some of the biggest, most significant losses are going to be occurred in, in, in 44 as well. Again, that will just reinforce the 100th, uh, bloody 100th um, legend. But, it, you know, it was it was a lot of luck involved in it. As I said, if you if you end up in those more vulnerable positions in the, in the, and, and are attacked. But one of the things you couldn't do, didn't matter how good you were as a, as a pilot, you know, you couldn't avoid the flak. And most of the uh, casualties are going to actually be down to flak. And so, you know, if you're attacking targets that are heavy in flak in nice clear days, then, you know, you're going to be 
much more vulnerable than, than otherwise. And so we were just an unlucky group. I think that's, that's true, because also the other thing is the nature of the target. Flying against a submarine pen on the French coast is not the same as flying deep into Germany to bomb Berlin. The concentration of flak around those targets, that's another variable. So, and, and then look at the draw, where you are in the stack, low, medium, high, first wave or second wave, wherever you are, that, that's a massive factor. And then a lot of the raids go wrong because the fighter escort doesn't rendezvous with the bomber stream because this is all done on bearings and time. So if you're escort for the bits where they are, even later when the Mustang is going all the way, it still sometimes doesn't get to the right place at the right time. So you're, you're an isolated bomb group. And the, the Luftwaffe fighter controllers are wise to this. In the early days, they know the limit of the American fighter range. And it's not until really you get uh, fighters that can escort you all the way to the target and back where you've got a chance. But even then, it can only be in one place at a time. It can't be in two places at a time. And when you're got really long bomber streams there's got to be a patch there's got to be a hole where those fighters get in and as reggie just talked about rocket firing dropping mines standoff weapons all these different things are thrown at anything that can just make a wedge and and create a gap where you can get in and then you've got your more heavily armored fighters with bigger heavier heavier weapons as well all coming into, as the and the, the luftwaffe ironically as the war progresses from 43 into 44, is actually getting stronger. So because of German fighter production and the tactics are getting better as well. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, we, we talked about discipline and it was, there was no doubt that sometimes on the ground in those days there was a, a lack of military discipline that had to be established. A lot of what we call discipline in formation flying wasn't necessarily so much about discipline but about experience. Because these, these these young guys, they, they hadn't had much experience in flying B-17s. The number of hours they had, their experience of weather, no experience of being attacked by German fighters, all the bombing practices done in you know reasonably good conditions in America, and then they find themselves over here with the weather, the flak, and, 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 and the fighters. So there's a lot to be said about you know their experience at that time and the training that they needed to actually fly these missions. I mean, they were here, so between June 43 and April 45, it's not a very long time operationally here, but the learning curve was really, really sharp after, after 43, learning about, you know, generally how to fly these aircraft, um, how to use the fighters. So you, first of all, you have no fighter cover, then you have fighter cover, but even then it's how do you use that fighter cover? So at the start, the fighters would close escort the bombers. Later found out that wasn't a very good tactic because that allowed the German fighters to be drawn onto the formation. So they would then use the fighters to sweep ahead to clear the way. All of those things contributed to improving um, the statistics for the, for the bomber groups. And also, by the time you get into 45, a lot of the really good German pilots have gone. You know, the, the, they, they don't have, uh, by 45, they are struggling to meet production. They are struggling to meet production of pilots. The, what's going up against the 8th, what's going up against the Mustangs is not as good as it was in, 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 um, in 1943. So a lot of those things contribute to the general statistics improving. But even despite that, and you look at some of the missions of the 100th, I said it, it's still, they're still losing planes in quite large numbers um, right, right through to, to, towards the end. And, you know, and that's because, again, it's not just about fighters, it's also about flak and, and, and the uh, density of those German defences around some of the targets that they're hitting. What, what is well documented is the lack of discipline in the 100th before they get to the UK. And, you know, and they're flying on, flying on their 
flying on missions where people have supposedly going on rehearsal bombing missions where aircraft are disappearing from the formation and going to visit their wives and things like that. And commanding officers replaced. And, you know, these things do manifest themselves in how you perform in the air. I mean, I know that from my own personal military experience. If you don't get it right with the basics, it will happen and those gaps will be exposed if people think they can just do what they like. But there is a really steep learning curve. And, um, you know, if you look at the... Uh, it did have a reputation, inverted commas, for colourful behaviour. Um, but they, they soon learn that actually that, that's not the way ahead. And so much of it's down to the personality of the commanders at squadron and group level. But as Reg has eloquently said, you can't measure that just in losses. It's where, they, where, where that formation is, where that group is, how it performs, what targets it goes against. So there is an element of luck. There's also a huge element of training and focus and and and, and command, you know, And you get this reputation of the bloody hundredth, and and, and even the, every bomb group has the man who came to dinner as a legend. You know, the guy who arrives the night before the mission goes on the mission, gets shot down, and nobody knows who he is. So that it, that's a real stark illustration of the attrition to go to go and lose ten, twelve aircraft in a day, to then get up the next morning and say we go again. You know, it, it's, it's almost unthinkable in this day and age, but these guys did it. So, Mike, you say getting up, doing it again and again. There were, of course, people who didn't fly many missions simply because they were shot down, they were lost, they're missing in action. But one person who did do lots of missions with the Bloody 100th, Rosie Rosenthal, more than 50 missions, he did get up day after day and do it again and again. Let's go and find out a little bit more about Rosie Rosenthal now. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast, a podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. We've come up the stairs now in the control tower to the main control room. Mike, we talk about the people, the planes and the places, but this part of the museum, this is very, very much about, about the people who flew the planes and, and the ground crew too. Yeah, it's a great spot, isn't it? I mean, you look around here, there's saxophones in cases, there's uniforms, silk wedding dresses. It really is spectacular. And of course, there's the Rosenthal cabinet, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But um, it's a conversion of what was the the brain of the control tower, the control room itself. But uh, it's been put to such good use and it's part of the progress of the narrative timeline as you move through the Thorpe Abbott's Museum. And it's, it's been very well done. So we come over to the, 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 the Rosenthal cabinet, a floor-to-ceiling glass and wooden cabinet. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Rosie Rosenthal, an entire cabinet dedicated to him. A picture of, of Rosie's uh, riveters, uh, Rosie Rosenthal's crew at Thorpe Abbotts in 1943. His dress uniform there in the cabinet as well. His medals, uh, an ammunition box belonging to, to one of his crew members. And, and even Rosie Rosenthal's wedding invitations. Ron Batley, you're a trustee of the museum here at Thorpe Abbotts, the 100th Bomb Group Memorial Museum. You actually met Rosie Rosenthal, a fascinating character. He, he, he didn't have to fly 52 missions, no. but he did. Twi more than twice as many as he was required to do. Well, he, he just felt that that was the duty he wanted to do. And he's a lucky man to, to survive. 52 missions is uh, <laughs> a lot of times to fly in the harm's way, isn't it? And what kind of person was he? Unassuming 
his uh, fellow airmen, they all looked up to Rosie. Uh, he was, in their minds, uh, just a wonderful human being, I suppose. He was a Brooklyn lawyer before he uh, joined the 8th Air Force. After the war, he went to Germany. He was involved in the Nuremberg trials. He was, yes, yes. That is where he met his, his wife. Uh, and, of course, we've got here at the museum wedding invitations. Uh, they were married in Germany just after World War II, while these trials, I believe, were going on. That's a fantastic testimony from Ron, but to be Jewish, to join the 8th Air Force and to fly on combat missions is brave enough. To, be, to run the risk of being shot down, to then be shot down twice and to escape and, and get back is, is staggeringly brave. And um, I don't know that many people today would, would do that. And then after the war, he resumed his lawyering and uh, interviewed Hermann Göring, commander of the German Air Force and the second highest ranked Nazi during most of the war as part of the Nuremberg trials. What would it have been like to be in that room, uh, to, be, to be Rosie Rosenthal, to be a Jew, to be a B-17 pilot, to be sat in a room with the second highest ranking Nazi who com- controlled the fighters that were actually trying to shoot you down for your 52 missions? And he said later that, uh, that seeing these strutting conquerors after they were sentenced, powerless, pathetic, and preparing for the hangman was the closure I needed. Justice had overtaken evil. My war was over. So, so it was closure for him. He had gone through the war, 52 missions, as we said, shot down twice, evading capture, and then seeing justice served against the Nazis. Yeah, after the Munster raid, where he's the pilot of the only aircraft that gets back, having lost all those other aircraft, he becomes quite a talisman for the 100th Bomb Group. And we, we talked about those horrific losses and that. He's there from that point forward, taking the Bomb Group forward and remains an icon or talisman or whatever, whatever phrase you want to use for the group after the war. So Rosie Rosenthal, a great survivor, not least, Ron, on the Munster mission of the 10th of October when 13 planes went out on a mission and his was the only one to come back. That mission especially, I think there were 15 aircraft left here originally and 13 made the mission and just one returned back here. You can imagine the feeling on base. They must have been devastated perhaps in this actual building up there waiting for the mission to return and just one came back the effect that must have had not just the senior officers here but the ground crew all the empty hard stands here we know now i think the final figure is 757 young men lost their lives flying combat mission from here which is about average for a group flying this uh, uh, amount of missions, uh, because there were several others who lost their lives, uh, ground men for one reason or another. And we're standing here in front of a picture of, of two pilots who were shot down within two days of each other, including one on the Munster mission, when Rosie Rosenthal was the pilot of the only aircraft to make it back. Mike, the 100th Bomb Group was full of colourful characters, wasn't it? It certainly was, and if you read all of the accounts that have been written, the uh, Major John Egan, the, the CEO of the 418th, and uh, Major Gail Bucky Cleveland of the 350th, they loom large in those stories, and they are, yeah, you would say, colourful characters, but they're very much associated with the 
ill-disciplined days of the of the of the hundred when they're being punished in the air and the things aren't as they should be on the ground and they're, they're very much on that big steep learning curve we've talked about. So when they when they get shot down, that has a huge impact on those that survive. But it really is a, a change, a sea change in the way that the bomb group starts to behave and the culture around it. So Rosenthal is a is a different character altogether. And those that follow on, it sort of breaks the mould of, of the the colourful, as we keep using that phrase, or the lively, formative year months of of the bomb group of the hundredth, uh, and and things change. But uh, they they're, they're they're together. They are huge characters in the in the narrative of the hundredth bomb group. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States Eighth Army Air Force during World War II. Mike, we've come into the main museum building here at Thor Puppets. It's been a fantastic visit, hasn't it? It really has, Johan. And um, it's quite a privilege to, to be allowed into these group museums in the closed season. And what it really does give you is an insight into the dedication of the volunteers, because the visitors in the, in the summer season see it all polished up and ready and open, everything that's just as it should be, and the volunteers are scurrying around, showing them around, etc. But we don't see the cold January day like today, people painting things and moving things around. And every museum we've been to in the closed season has been the same, and it really does give you some insight into the real dedication and what it takes to be a volunteer at one of these bomb group museums a huge huge amount of dedication we're joined by simon quilter simon you deal with communications for the museum here at thor Puppets. with the release of the masters of the air miniseries this could be a really really big year for you yeah we expect it to be to be honest all of the information that we've had through social media and the interest that we've had and other contacts do show that it's going to be a a very busy summer for us with potentially, uh, we expect, up to twice as many uh, visitors as we've had uh, in previous years. Last summer we had around 3,000 visitors and we're open on a Saturday, Sunday and a a Wednesday. Uh, So it's a lot of people coming through the doors in that period and this year will be even more than that. And I guess the type of visitor that you're going to get is probably going to be a little bit different to the visitors that you've had up until now. The Masters of the Air is going to mean that the story of the 8th Air Force, of the 100th Bomb Group, of the bloody 100th, is is going to reach far and wide. Yes, absolutely. Last summer we had a visit from John Lucky Luckadoo, a 101-year-old veteran from the 100th Bomb Group who had served here 80 years ago. And we were privileged to have him here uh, for a ceremony marking the Munster mission in October 1943. And we're privileged to get visits at the moment from a lot of veterans' families. But we get people from across Europe and across the States, to be honest, who are just interested. And the type of visitors that we'll get this year, no doubt, will be people who have seen the series, don't know an awful lot about the uh, real 100th uh, bomb group and, and the reality of it and and we'll be here to hopefully learn and take away the actual reality of what happened here 80 years ago and of course mike the 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 legacy of the hundredth bomb group lives on today yes it does with the with the hundredth refueling wing over at mildenhall trace their lineage directly back to hundredth bomb group in fact their air tanker refuelers fly with a square d 
on their tail fin, exactly the same as the B-17s did when they flew from here. So that's the, the 100th Bomb Group recognition sig- symbol on their tails. And it's important when you're a, a unit today, whether you're the Grenadier Guards or you're, you are the 100th Refuel Wing, to, to track your history back and have a foundation to build it on for your ethos and for your new recruits and your serving members to take pride in and um, refer to. And Simon, there is that strong link between the air refuelling wing, the 100th air refuelling wing and the museum itself. They're, they're often involved with what you do, including coming here for things like patching ceremonies to commemorate that, uh, that link and, and to remember the people who flew from here during World War II, uh, those who returned as well as those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. Yeah, very much so. Uh, we we have uh, visits from Rob Paley, who's the hundredth um, Air Refueling Wing, hundredth Bomb Group historian, part of the U.S. Uh, Air Force at Mildenhall. He's over here regularly. In fact, he's doing some work for us at the moment. But um, the personnel come over, uh, especially the new members of the Air Refueling Wing. They come over here, and then they'll they'll get a good tour around the museum. And in your view, was the 100th bomb group, the bloody 100th, were they unlucky? I think they were certainly unlucky in the early part of the war uh, with some of those missions. Uh, Regensburg, where they lost seven aircraft in August 1943, and obviously we've discussed um, Bremen and Munster. But all of the other bomb groups uh, that that were associated with the um, US Army Air Force, they all had some terrible losses at at, uh, different times. So overall, we probably weren't any worse than than others if you look at the if you look at the tally mike i guess there is no clear-cut answer then when it comes to whether the bloody hundredth was particularly unlucky or not no probably not we've all got we'll all have our own opinions and uh, the tv series will will fuel the debate even further but i think as simon's just said it that that first 12 months was was particularly bloody so the, the name was justified. But, you know, the wheels down story, the strong characters, it all adds to the mix, doesn't it, and the debate. And, and it'll go on. But what is good is that um, the new renewed focus on the 100th in the next few months will attract more people to the history, to the subject, and hopefully they'll dig a bit deeper. And also they'll go to the other bomb group museums. It won't just be about the 100th. They'll, they'll get the wider story. And they'll be people who live in uk and people from much further afield and from the states so all in all it's going to be a good thing it'll broaden everyone's horizons and bring more people to the subject and be a fitting tribute to the men and some of the women who who served in the eighth air force simon quilter everybody at the hundredth bomb group memorial museum thank you very much for for opening your doors to us during the closed season wish you all the best for 2024 and beyond mike uh, that's about it for this episode of the mighty eighth podcast we're going to be back next month we're going to be looking at big week a huge chapter for the mighty eighth air force during world war ii that will be in february but for now from the mighty eighth podcast i'm johan tasker goodbye i'm mike peters goodbye